0: Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast where we discuss some of the best moments, best names, and best memories in sports history, I'm your host, Dana Augusta, and I'm back again with another show highlighting the best in sports history. And I appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to hear what's going on in the world of sports history. And as a reminder, please subscribe to this podcast if you like what you hear here. And check out our Twitter page at Historically SP2 for your daily dose of sports history. And on today's show, I sit down with co-host of Hello Old Sports podcast, Dan Newman, as we discuss the greatest debut of a franchise in major pro sports history, a team that will become legendary and a dynasty in the true sense of the word. Also this week will be the top five history making performances and events that celebrated anniversaries this past week, as well as a shout out going to my favorite team and the reasons why I was drawn to them. So sit back and enjoy the show. This is Historically Speaking Sports Podcast from the Sports History Network. The Pigskin Tales Podcast is all about the lesser-known pro football players. Yes, there are stories about the ones we know, like Brad Tarkenton and Harold Red Grange. But have you ever heard of Ernie Nevers, how about Dave Osborne, or even Grady Alderman? These men created their own path to the NFL. How did they do it? Listen to the Pigskin Tales Podcast. Now streaming on your favorite music platform. Go to pigskintales.com Hello and welcome back to this episode of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. and I'm your host, Dana Augusta, and today... I have a very special guest on board with us, and a man by the name of Daniel Newman. He is the host of Hello Again Sports, and um, we're gonna be talking about today what I consider one of the greatest debuts of a franchise, maybe in any sport, you know? And we're talking about, of course, the Cleveland Browns of 1950. Now, you gotta remember, the Browns were a member of the All-American Football Conference, and they were a dominant, dominant team during that time. Winning four championships of the, of the, actually every championship that franchise have ever gave out. Coached by the legendary Paul Brown, they had Otto Graham, Marion Motley, and the list goes on and on. They debuted against the Eagles in 1950, September 16th, exactly, of 1950. And we're going to take it away. We're going to let Daniel talk a little bit more about it. Dan, great to have you aboard, man.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Dana. Really glad I get the chance to do this. And this is a really cool, this is a really cool moment in sports history because it's kind of the first and really the only time where a team from a, you know, a a rival league joined an existing, you know, a, a much more longer established league and came in and started kicking butt almost right away.
0: You're right. I mean, let's do a little backstory of, of both of them. Uh, first, you have Cleveland, who I've mentioned before, was members of the All-American Football Conference, and they were not the only team to come into the NFL from that league.
2: Yeah, the other was uh, San Francisco, right?
0: Yeah, the Forty ers came in right with them, and there was the Baltimore Colts, but it wasn't the Colts that we know of. It was a precursor to the ones that we know of. That this team, I think, the Colts, this team, Colts team lasted like maybe a couple years, and then they folded, and then they came back. But the Forty ers and the the Browns were the two of the main the mainstays of that league that came into the NFL.
2: Yeah, and they both sort of became identified as you know, classic NFL teams. And when I first started learning about this, it's funny too, especially with the Browns, because they were one of the teams in 1960. And I guess it would have been in 1970 when the AFL and NFL merged, the Browns went over to the AFC. So they're kind of the only team that's been, you know, AFC, NFL. And then, you know, obviously they, they stayed in the NFL, but then they were part of the AFC, which was made up, almost entirely of former AFL teams. So you don't realize what an interesting history that franchise has had, especially when, and it was funny, I was just actually talking about this last night with my wife. Um, We were watching a video of uh, Calvin Johnson being inducted into the hall of fame this past year. And I was talking just about how kind of no offense to any Lions fans out there, but what a, What a sad team the Lions have been for the last 60 or so years. And they're one of the only teams that hasn't, that's been in the league the whole time that hasn't made the Super Bowl. The other one is the Browns. And so you always think of the Browns as this kind of inept franchise that, you know, had winless seasons and was never any good and left the, you know, left the city for Baltimore and then had to get an expansion team. And then you don't realize that from 46 to sometime in the late fifties, early sixties, they were one of the premier teams in both the AAFC and then later in the NFL. It's crazy.
0: You're right, because you think about it. They dominated in the AAFC in the 1940s. They come to the NFL and down and, and and pretty much become a dynasty right off the bat in the early 1950s. And then you get Jim Brown in the 1960s, and then it keeps, keeps on going, going. They win the championship in 64. They become a perennial playoff team throughout the early 70s. Mm-hmm. Then then, then there was a brief period of you know, mediocrity. Then in the early 80s with Brian Seip and the Cardiac Kids, and then later on with uh, Bernie Kozar and the two – playoff losses that they suffered to the Broncos and the AFC championship games in 86 and 87. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a team that has been pretty much a very, I mean, for a lot of the younger millennial fans out there who I pick on a lot, <laughs> um, the Browns was a dominant, dominant franchise for years and years and years throughout the entire NFL history of the NFL from the time they entered in 1950 to the, pretty much until, until, like maybe the early 90s they yeah. were a dominant franchise and then yeah. everything fell apart in the mid 90s
1: yeah
2: and they just never never been able to make it back to that super bowl you know since the super bowl started but they've there's a lot of history there
0: yeah exactly exactly but we also talk about now we talked about the, the browns winning the championship and winning the afc championship four consecutive years in the 1940s they joined the nfl And their first game out the bat is against the defending NFL champion, Philadelphia Eagles in Philly. Now, setting up the situation, the game was on a Saturday night. The first game of the year, Saturday night, that's basically like what the NFL does now, having Mm -hmm. the Super Bowl champion play on Thursday night. Well, this year, in this particular instance in 1950, the Eagles were the defending NFL champs. They were supposed to basically run roughshod through this new team from this league that was, I guess what maybe was considered minor league at the time, at least that's what maybe some um, proponents of the NFL was thinking at the time. We'll talk more about that.
2: Yeah, it's funny they were formed in 1946. The the All American Football Conference, the AAFC, and they were actually founded by a guy, or not? They were one of the guys who founded it. I shouldn't give him the sole credit. It was a guy by the name of Arch Ward, mm-hmm. who was a Chicago sports writer. And Arch Ward is kind of an interesting guy, even though he was just a writer. He was never an executive. He never was in any sort of league leadership position. In addition to sort of providing the impetus and bringing the people together to found the AAFC, he previously was the inventor of the Golden Gloves, the Golden Gloves boxing, which is well known even to this day. And he also was the guy who in the 1930s had the idea for the very first MLB All Star game, which was played in Chicago in 1933, Babe Ruth at the first home run, whatever. So he, he sort of, I think it was a bunch of owners who had wanted to get into the NFL and had, for whatever reason, been not welcome in doing so. And so he brought these teams together in the AFC, and it was a lot of arenas that, or a lot of a lot of cities I should say that didn't necessarily have not only did they not have football but they didn't have professional sports at all so Buffalo Bisons and the Miami Seahawks San Francisco I love
0: that name by the way the Miami Seahawks I love My, that name yeah it's, <laughs> it's
2: kind of weird to hear when you because we think of the Seahawks as, in football as being something else mm-hmm. but it's all these cities and then there are some teams some rivals there's two teams in New York there's a he kind of follows baseball a little bit. He's got a New York Yankees that play at Yankee Stadium and a Brooklyn Dodgers that play at Ebbets Field. And you got, you know, the Chicago Rockets. I think the thing that's probably most noteworthy is two teams in California because yeah, you had the right. Los Angeles Dons and the San Francisco 49ers. Now, there was a team in LA, there was the Rams in the NFL who had just moved there a few years previously, actually, from, um, from Cleveland. From
0: Cleveland, right?
2: Yeah. And so but it was the first league to really put teams on more than one team on the West coast. The giants and Dodgers were a few years away in baseball. Lakers wouldn't get into out to LA until the late 1950s. And so it was the first time that he would had two rival teams on the West coast. And that, that rivalry was a big part of what made the AFC so great. Now, I think it did have some of the challenges of, a new league. You had a lot of teams that only lasted for a year or two and then had to fold. You had teams that had to move from one city to another. So, while it's not entirely, um, you shouldn't entirely dismiss what the Browns did in those four years and they proved themselves in the NFL later on. I think it is fair to say that talent wise, they were head and shoulders above any of the other teams in the AFC. And that accounted for a lot of their success.
0: That's right. Um, and then you have the Eagles, who were the, like I said, the defending super, NFL champion. They was the Super Bowl, but this is they were the defending NFL champs. They defeated the Rams in the 1949 NFL championship game in the Coliseum, and they were a prohibitive favorite against this new team. You know, talk about that Eagles team from, you know, from that from the late 1940s. They had won back-to-back NFL titles at the time.
2: Back-to-back NFL titles. Their best player was a running back by the name of Steve Van Buren, and my father's family grew up. In my father, too, my father, um, I'm, I'm from New York, but my father grew up um, until his teenage years in Philadelphia and his whole family was from Philly. And my grandfather, who was not a huge football fan, but, had, you know, been around the sport growing up, you know, Steve Van Buren was always like the guy, the name that he brought up that he remembered hearing about and knowing about as a kid. He was he's in the Hall of Fame. He's a was a member of the NFL 100th anniversary team. He was probably their best player, but they also had guys like uh, Pete hosts, who was a great, great running back. Or, I'm sorry, great wide receiver, tight end type of guy. So just a really good team, and they had won, coached by another Hall of Famer, a guy by the name of Greasy Neal. They had won back to back championships. They had shut out the their opponents in both the 48 and the 49 NFL title game you mentioned 49 against the rams out in la 48 might have been even more impressive they beat the chicago cardinals 7 to nothing and this was a rematch of the previous year when they had lost to the cardinals in the, in chicago 28 to 21 mm-hmm. but in 48 they beat the cardinals 7 to nothing at shibe park in philly uh, about a week before christmas and I'm looking here at the attendance. There was a a paid attendance at this game of 36,000, but an actual attendance of only 28,000. And that means about 8,000 people who bought tickets to this game didn't show up. And there's a really good reason for this. And even if you don't realize it, most NFL fans have probably seen a clip of this game. This game was played in a driving, driving blizzard, probably... This one of the snowiest games, at least one of the snowiest big games in NFL history. I always think back to um, I think it was like 1993 when the Cowboys and the Dolphins played on Thanksgiving in Dallas. And there game, was a right? snowstorm and Leon led at the end and with the field goal. But this was, you know, picture that type of snow, you know, doubled or tripled. In fact, Steve Van Buren before this game had just assumed that it would be canceled and mm-hmm. was later called by his I think by his teammates or something saying where are you and he couldn't get his car out and had to take the the street car d- d- into downtown philly to go to the game and so they had just come off winning this back-to-back titles and they were considered the best team in the nfl and greasy Neal was considered one of the best coaches in the nfl going into the 49 season and they were the pride of the nfl and i'm sure that part of the reason why bert bell the commissioner Now, I'm sure even then, part of it was eyeballs, you know, whether he wanted to get people in the stadium, which he did. They had like, what, 72,000 people at this game or, you know, fans listening on the radio or even, you know, there was very early days of TV. Then I'm sure that was a big part of it. But I also think that he, Burt Bell, the commissioner, probably wanted to start the season with the pride of the NFL, giving a smack to these upstart AAFC Browns.
0: Yeah, you mentioned Greasy Neal was the coach of the Eagles, and of course, the legendary Paul Brown was the coach of the Cleveland Browns. And the game was played at, instead of it playing at uh, at Shy Park, which was the Eagles' home. At, during that time, they played the game at Municipal Stadium, which is a temp, which was a temporary home for the Eagles. They would travel back and forth between Shy Park and Municipal Stadium. This game was played at Municipal Stadium because I think maybe that the, the Phillies might have had a game that night, or the Athletics might have had a game that night there. Mm-hmm. You know, so the, the game was moved to Municipal Stadium, and instead of the Eagles delivering a smackdown, it was the Browns giving a smackdown to the Eagles in in one of the most improbable and one of the most incredible debuts for a franchise in NFL history.
2: Those who listen to my podcast, uh, to our podcast, uh, know that my brother uh, is a, he's a, he's a Philly. I mean, he's, he, he knows more Philly than I do because he, um, he went to school in Philly for four years and he's also an army football season ticket holder. One of the interesting things about municipal stadium is it was later after president Kennedy was killed. It was actually renamed uh JFK's John F. Kennedy stadium. And, remained in existence all the way into the late 1970s but re- basically starting at some point in the sixties, basically hosted nothing except the army Navy game. So for about right. 20 years, this stadium was there and all it did was host army Navy every year. And then maybe, you know, high school football or track meets or whatever. But so that's sort of just an interesting factoid about um, municipal stadium that later became JFK stadium. But you're right. This is a big event. This is in some ways, it kind of reminds me more of something you see in college football, where to kick off the season, you have this big game between two really good teams on a prime time, on a Saturday night type of thing. and a neutral site
0: type of thing, but this wasn't really a neutral site, right?
2: Not a neutral site, but maybe a bigger arena, bigger stadium, that type of thing. And this is such a big deal that, uh, again, Burt Bell, the commissioner, he decides that they're going to name an MVP. (laughs) of this game. Now I don't know exactly what that MVP ended up getting, and it ends up being Otto Graham, unsurprisingly, the best quarterback of the of the era. But such a big deal, so much hype around this game. And I think, you know, the Eagles, they Greasy Neal later says that they scout. They you know they watch you know game film was in existence in those days. They watched the game film, but he later said it just didn't prepare them. First of all, the Browns had been lucky enough to add some other, some new players um, from some of the defunct AAFC teams. They had added like six players from former AAFC teams that had not made the jump over into the NFL. And he later said, you know, that this was not even the Browns of last year. This was essentially an AAFC all-star team. And so they end up beating them uh, pretty handily by a score of 35 to 10. Yeah.
0: 35 to 10. I have some of the stats here. Well, let me give you like a little quick rundown. The Eagles actually scored first uh, in that mm-hmm. game on a, a field goal by Cliff Patton. And then next thing you know, the Browns scored 28 unanswered points. And by midway through the fourth quarter, the Browns were up 28 to three. And I know people in Philadelphia that was expecting this, you know, just runaway. you know, they got one, but it was in a way that they didn't expect. Um, Paul Brown has been always been known as one of the most influential and one of the most innovative coaches in the history of football, and that was on full display that night. I mean, you look at Otto Graham's stats from that night, he um, went 21 of 38 for 346 yards. I mean, that's numbers that you, you wouldn't see on a regular basis until like maybe the 1980s, you know, but he was throwing the ball all over the lot. And I know that the Eagles, being part of the NFL, was not used to anything like that.
2: Yeah, one of, probably other than Graham, the best player on the Cleveland Browns was Marion Motley, who was both a running back, a fullback. Although in those days, fullbacks carried the ball a lot more than they do today. Um, Motley, along with Bill Willis, had been two of the four players that reintegrated professional football in the 19 in 1946. Uh, It was two of two players on the Browns and then two players on the L.A. Rams in the NFL. One of whose names was, I believe, vitamin Smith. And the other one escapes me at the moment. I'm sorry. Kenny Kenny Washington. Washington, Right. Yep. That's right. Exactly. So anyway, Motley was the guy on the team um he was the again other than graham the biggest offensive weapon and so neil and the eagles they prepared to stop motley right and brown being brown he decides that what they're going to do is basically not run the ball almost at all in the first two and a half or three quarters he um he has two Hall of Fame wide receivers, Dante Lavelli, and also another gentleman by the name of Max Speedy, who Max yep. Speedy actually just was inducted into the Hall of Fame last year. Well, technically, he was inducted this year because of the the COVID-related delay in the induction. But Max Speedy was a guy who actually um, eventually was sort of blackballed from professional football because he jumped to the Canadian League, and it was always sort of thought that The reason why it took Speedy 70 years after his retirement to get into the Hall of Fame was that Paul Brown, the grudge of the late Paul Brown existed even into the 21st century. Nonetheless, Brown uses these two Hall of Fame receivers and his Hall of Famer, his Hall of Fame quarterback and Graham, basically doesn't give the ball to Motley at all in the first three quarters. Wears him down. Graham throws a touchdown pass to Lavelli he throws a touchdown pass to Speedy. He throws another touchdown pass to a gentleman by the name of I think it was Dub Jones. I don't know if you have the box score in front of you there.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, he does. Dub Jones actually caught the very first touchdown mm-hmm. pass. Um, it was a 59-yarder from Graham. And Dub Jones, if people don't really realize, Dub Jones is the father of future NFL All-Pro quarterback Burt Jones.
2: I didn't know that. You know, I did being not from know Louisiana,
0: that. Louisiana, we know a lot about Burt Jones and me being an LSU fan. Yeah. <laughs> Burt Jones's dad. So. <laughs> yeah. But, wow. Um, I did not know that. Yeah. Dub Jones is the father and was a longtime scout for the Browns. And uh, he actually, you know, as a side note, tried to get, uh, tried to persuade the Cleveland Browns to trade up in the 1971 draft to get Archie Manning.
2: Mm-hmm. So, oh, really?
0: Yeah. Oh, so. Wow. That's what you have there. You have the, you know Doug Jones catches the first touchdown pass. The Valley catches a twenty-six yard touchdown pass from Graham in the second quarter, and Max Speedy catches another touchdown pass from Graham in the third. So you have all three of those guys catching passes from from um, from Otto Graham, who I consider to be one of the greatest quarterbacks that no one talks about. Mm-hmm. No one talks about how I mean you, you imagine a quarterback that leads his team to the Super Bowl nine consecutive years. Mm-hmm. that's essentially what out Graham did okay you combine what he did in the aafc to what he did in the nfl you combine the two he basically played his led his team to a championship game appearance in nine consecutive years yeah which, which he, is he, impressive you know and you talked about motley motley only had 11 carries for 48 yards
2: you and know? i'd be so, willing to i'd be willing to bet if you looked and broke that down probably two-thirds of that were in the fourth quarter
0: yeah, he's trying to run down the clock. You know, mm-hmm. Pete Peel, so like you said earlier, was the only touchdown reception for the for um, for Philly, but that wasn't until late in the fourth quarter when the game was well out of
2: hand. I think it should also be noted that Van Buren was hurt for this game. Yeah, he game. was. And now, I don't know what the nature of the injury was, and they asked Neil afterwards, would you guys have won if Van Buren had been in the lineup? And he said, no. He said, we we, we might have scored a couple more touchdowns, but we would not have won the game. So... Greasy Neal came away thoroughly, thoroughly impressed with the team that had just beaten his. And then the Browns, they do go on to win. They win the title in '50. They beat beat another really good team of the era. They beat the 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 1950 the LA Rams with uh, the the two headed monster at quarterback of Van Brocklin and Bob Waterfield and uh, the two Hall of Fame receivers in. Uh, Crazy Legs, Hirsch, and Tom Fears. So, yeah, that, this was the beginning of, or the continuing continuance, depending on how you want to look at it, of a dominant decade for the Cleveland Browns.
0: Yeah, I mean, you think about those Browns teams in the 50s, you know, you had, like, really good teams all across the lot between the Browns, and you got to, again, millennial fans that's listening, the Browns and Lions were two of the, Dominant teams of the of the of that era, the early 1950s. The Browns would win; they won it in fifty three and fifty four, I think it was, or fifty two and fifty three. I knew they won two in the early 50s. I think and they won, won... in fifty seven, which mm-hmm. was their last NFL title. Yep. And then you have the Browns intermixed in between them winning championships. In fact, the Browns Lions rivalry started when them constantly meeting up in NFL championship games.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are the Bobby Lane lions of the fifties
0: bobby lane um was um um schmidt was the middle linebacker i don't know if he was there at the time but Mm -hmm. night train lane was there yep Mm -hmm. we had a lot of really good hard notes. i mean you you talk about a hardcore old school football smash mouth type of football that was the lions of the 50s and meanwhile the the browns was like the vision of the future of the of the NFL with the passing and Paul Brown's innovations, everything from the face mask to shuttling plays in from the sidelines. I mean everything that they the Browns did was like years ahead of their time.
2: He put a lot more emphasis than most coaches of the day on the mental part of the game. Mm-hmm. I, I was reading in preparation for this that he his team wouldn't even practice on Mondays and Tuesdays. They would just do, you know, film sessions or blackboard work or that type of thing and that was the that was sort of his view of football was that it was a physical game sure but there was a mental piece of it that was really being underemphasized and the other thing i think it's worth noting about him is the flexibility um he was one of the guys you know, i think it used to be more the coach would kind of get the team riled up and he'd make sure they practice and make sure they knew the plays and then just kind of send them out there. In fact, in this game, the Eagles come out running a five, four defense, which is like something you'd see in pop Warner football these days with five defensive linemen and four linebackers and only two defensive backs. And even with Graham throwing the ball to Jones and Lavelli and speedy and throwing it all over the field, greasy Neal very stubbornly, refuses to come out of this five four defense. Right. So they're able to keep throwing. And I think that speaks to how Brown was sort of a step ahead, even a step ahead even from other Hall of Fame coaches like Greasy e. Neal. So yeah, just I mean he he later kind of wore out his welcome, I think, in Cleveland. He had a lot of conflicts and clashes with Art Modell and then right went to Cincinnati and kind of he did all right and didn't really do all that much. But yeah, I mean, everybody from Bill Belichick to Bill Walsh, to you name it speaks of Paul Brown. I mean, I think I'm pretty sure Walsh even later coached for Brown on the, in Cincinnati. It was
0: um, actually he, Bill Walsh, Coach the quarterbacks, and he was the one who developed the West Coast offense under Brown. Though yep. he did, he did learn the West the elements or the rudiments of the West Coast offense from, believe it or not, Al Davis. Yeah, and, that makes sense. Uh, and you mentioned you mentioned it just now about how Greasy Neal didn't refuse to get out of that five four defense. It's a it's a lot like, and you in you hear the saying all the time that if you don't know history, you're doomed to repeat it. Uh In Super Bowl four with the Vikings and Chiefs, the 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 Vikings refused to get out of a certain defense that they were in. And Dawson just tore them apart with just short passes. And Bud Grant just refused to get out of that defense, basically saying we're going to play this way. And if we die this way, we're just going to die this way. (laughs) And and that's what basically what happened. They played a certain defense against Dawson and the Chiefs in Super Bowl four and did not get out of that defense at all. And so, and for whatever reason, Bud Grant said, "No, we're not getting out of the defense. We still could win with this." And basically, got blasted. You know, so you see that often not, in, often in, in, in not only in football but in sports where a team gets to the biggest dance of the year and they live and die by the old adage, you dance with who brought you." But for some reason, the coaches were just stubborn. You know, they basically are because I'm a nephew of a coach, so <laughs> you know, so the coaches are just stubborn. You know, and, you know, that's just the way it was. And Greasy Neal was another example of we played this defense, we're playing a 5-4, and guess what? We're not getting out of it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. We should also mention that we talked a lot about the offense, but that Browns defense was oh
0: man, yes. pretty
2: good themselves. Uh, and this was sort of, I think, one of the points that Greasy Neal made. Now, Motley, it's always kind of hard to assess these guys from back then because usually guys who played both are better known for offense. So Motley was a linebacker also, and a very good linebacker, but not an all-time great linebacker. He was an all-time great running back. But they did have two yeah. guys on defense that are in the Hall of Fame based mostly on their defensive prowess, and that's Bill Willis, who we talked about a minute ago, who was a what they called a middle guard in those days with a five-man defensive line. And then it had a defensive man by the name of Len Ford, who was another hall of famer. And he had not been on the team in the AAFC. He had been with the Los Angeles Dons, the the LA AAFC team. And then as part of that, I guess you'd almost call it an expansion draft in reverse as part of that dispersal dispersal
0: draft, right?
2: Yeah. Where all these teams got to pick old AAFC players. They ended up with Len Ford, who is in and himself a Hall of Fame defensive end. So think about this team that had barely lost a game in four years in the AFC, and then they're bringing in a Hall of Fame defensive end. So, and there were other guys on that team, that 1950 Colts, or I'm sorry, 1950 Colts, that 1950 Browns defense. But those, I think those are the three guys, um, including Motley, who made it to the Hall of Fame. And, Graham had played some defensive back in his days. They had a, a they had a tackle by the name of Lou Groza, who played both offense and defense, but he's actually better known. Uh, and he's as in the a Hall kicker. Of He's better known as a kicker. Yeah, so lots of Hall of Famers all over the place. But the offense, especially in this game, scoring 35 points gets the lion's share of the attention. But it's it's worth noting that they had some, some really good defensive players, Hall of Famers as well.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I talked about Lynn Ford a little bit in a past podcast. That I had, you know, when I highlighted players that were in the Hall of Fame that came from historical black colleges and universities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. Ford came from Morgan State. And he was, he played tight end at, while he was at Morgan State. He played tight end and defensive end, but he's in the Hall of Fame for the Browns as a defensive end. And you're right. He started off with the LA Dons of the AAFC.
2: Yeah. So just, I mean, you always wonder if players, you know, you, you, whether it's the Packers of the 60s, the Steelers of the, the 70s, um, my brother and I always talk in a different sport about the, the Boston Celtics of the fifties and sixties, about how you look at some of these rosters for some of these years. And you got eight or nine hall of famers on a roster. And, you know, even in the NFL guys, guys from those teams, some of those dynasties are still going in. we talked about speedy or right, Mike speedy, right. uh, Donnie shell got in from the Steelers this year. And, uh, you know, Jerry Kramer got in from green Bay a couple years years. So even 50, 60, 70 years later, more and more players from these dynasties keep going in and you wonder sometimes if maybe some of them are getting in because they were on those teams and that helps their case or were these teams so good because they had all these guys that were hall of famers. It's probably a little bit of both, but it's I
0: think it is a little bit of both. Yeah.
2: So it's funny to, you know, it's funny to look back though and just see, it's like, wow, there's, there's a ton of of famers on this team. And they also had a guy um, by the name of, and I'm going to, I'm blanking on his name, but, Somebody from the Saban family, I believe, was on that team. For was it, I think it was Nick Saban's father by the name of Lou Saban was a, a defensive back on that team for a couple of right. years, if I'm remembering correctly.
0: Right. Okay.
2: He, um, was, yeah, he, was, there for, he was there the entire AFC AAFC time. He was there from 46 to 49. So another guy who in some sort of uh, weird convoluted way um, is part of the, the Paul Brown coaching tree.
0: So, I mean, you talk about, when you talk about Paul Brown's coaching tree, you, you, you start off with, um, start off with Walsh and you got, and you have so many people, uh, the coach that, that, that was the successor of Paul Brown, um, Blanton Collier, who was mm-hmm. on that staff. He was a def, he was, Weave Eubank was on that staff, um, you know, who later coached the Colts through the the fifty eight title and then of course the Jets in Super Bowl three. He was on that staff. So yeah, and then all of the people that came from those guys, you know, you know, like with Weave Eubank, who was on that staff. You tell I me? Mean, he produced um Buddy Ryan.
2: Buddy Ryan. And you know, actually Don Shula played for those Paul Brown yeah, teams in the early fifties for was a couple a years. So years. There's right? another one. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's it's a fun team. I read a book, um, about 15 years ago and that was when when you said you were looking for somebody to to join you for this I kind of jumped on it because there's a book called the best show in football by a guy by the name of Andy Piasik um about this this whole sort of 46 to 55 dynasty and it really I mean it's a great it's just it's a fun team it's a fun story it's a fun era in pro football when things were just sort of starting to modernize a little bit in many different ways, whether it's media, whether it's expansion, whether it's just the style of play on the field. So it really is kind of a fun era and they're kind of the first, the first dynasty of any real note in the history of professional football. And it's just, you know, they're fun. They're just, they're a fun team to remember and talk about.
0: That's right. Yes. Right. Millennials. Um, the Cleveland Browns were once good. Exactly. Know, they're, they're, getting, exactly. they're getting better now. But once upon a time, the Browns were good, as well as the Lions. A little quick shout out to our partner. <laughs> you know, that's a Lions fan who's yep. oh,
2: Arnie. Play. Yep, absolutely.
0: Get a quick shout out to him. So, um, but anyway, Dan, I, I really appreciate you coming on with me today. And it's uh, been talk my about what you guys got coming up on um, on y'all podcast.
2: Sure. Yeah, so it's hello old sports, and uh my, it's co-hosted between my brother and I, my brother Andrew, um, and we, for those of you who, who haven't heard an episode, we're both from New York, um, we kind of, he went to school in Philly, I went to school in Boston, and now I live in D.C., and he lived in D.C. for a little bit, so we're kind of like, we're kind of East Coast-centric a lot of the times, so but we try and do, try and do as much as we can, and we really will do almost anything, we'll do, we did a couple episodes right when we first started last year about the history of the heavyweight boxing title, or we'll do... You know, give me your all time, you know, 25 man roster for the Yankees or we'll we'll delve back into like, here, let's talk about, you know, 100. Like we did like a whole episode on 1920 in sports or a whole episode on 1941 in sports. So the episode, it's funny, we talk about Philly. I'm actually we. um. The episode that I'm currently editing and hopefully to have out at some point this week was actually about the, the early 80s in Philly sports, specifically the year 1980. Because between.
0: Oh, man. Yeah. That's a, that's a great topic there.
2: Between June of 80 and January of 81, all four Philly teams were in the championship game or series of their respective sports only the six i'm sorry only the phillies actually won but oh, flyers definitely. eagles and uh 76ers all lost so that's what's coming up next we tend to get a little verbose so we, you know the, this episode tops and tops off at like two hours and 15 minutes so the editing has been a little bit of a process but oh, i bet <laughs> yeah now the editing is the editing gets to be a little bit uh, a little bit onerous but uh, it's funny you know it's worth it And then we got one. We actually just did a list of our all-time New York Giants team. Uh, We just Mm. did an offense and a defense and some special teams. Um, And we we got some other stuff coming up. Uh, I think uh, we're we're looking probably to put out sometime in October. The NBA is in its 75th anniversary, and so we're going to try and do the sort of – the NBA is going to – do. they did their 50th anniversary team of 50 players 25 years ago, which I remember watching. And so they're going to do 75 this year. So we're going to come out with 75, you know, our, our 75 anniversary, 75th anniversary team. Um, we're not just going to go through and list all 75 players because we know that would get a little tedious, but we're going to, we're going to assume that the Jordans and the Birds and the Russells and the Wilts are on everybody's list. And we're just going to kind of, kind of pick like our, our last 25. Um, and then the big thing that we do, and, and when I've done other podcasts, on the network uh i always like to mention this um we did it last year and it was it's the episode it's probably the the ones that i'm the proudest of we do what's called an in memoriam at the end of every year where we look at all of the or not say all because we sure we missed some but some some of the biggest players and other sports figures who've passed away in the previous year and so yeah last year it was guys like kobe and um who else passed away and lou brock and yes. um but, but, but you know there, there was you know obviously casey jones i remember um you know just anybody who passed away um al Kaline. i'm sure i'm missing a bunch um mm-hmm. and then this year we got guys like elgin baylor or um tommy lasorda passed out yeah. passed away at the very beginning of the year bobby bowden from florida yeah. long-time florida state coach and we just do like short you know eight to 10 minutes on, on each. We had, uh, several of our, um, several of our sports history network colleagues come on to talk about one or two individuals that meant something to them or that were particularly interesting to them. So it was sort of a little bit of a collaborative effort. And we even, you know, we had our dad on to talk about Dick Allen who had been one of his favorite baseball players growing up in Philly, so but we we kind of like, you know, we, we get fans of the show on, we get, you know, other hosts on, family members, whatever. So it's it's, it's he and I talking, but then it's also, it, it's just really cool. It's fun. It's it's the one that's kind of the most fun to put together, even though it's mm-hmm. a little bit of a maudlin topic. And it's, it's just a cool way to remember some of these guys, well-known guys, but then also, um, you know, maybe guys, you know, I went to Boston University and there was a Boston University hockey player that passed away Um earlier this year or earlier you know in 2020 so we talked about him so it's it's kind of just a cool way to you know talk about everybody from the big guys to maybe some lesser known so we start recording that probably around thanksgiving and so that, that's something to look out for in december so all
0: right but look man i really appreciate you coming on and this was a really uh, this was fun for me uh, doing it this morning and uh i whenever, whenever you come back you know you got an open invitation to come back on the show
2: I appreciate it, and I have to say, uh, just to kind of peel back the curtain a little bit, we're doing this at about eleven thirty on a uh, on a Sunday uh, on the nineteenth of September. So this is a cool way to kind of get ready to watch football all day too. Oh so. man,
0: you're right, and especially <laughs> me, and you know my team. My, I'm, a, I'm a Chargers fan, and I guess you, you have you ever noticed the hat I'm wearing? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a huge Chargers fan, and we got a big game against Dallas later this afternoon, so I'm getting ready for that. You know, Mm. but um,
2: mine already mine already lost on Thursday night in Washington. The Giants were in Washington, and I was there, and it was disappointing. They lost by one point. So,
0: (laughs) (laughs) anyway, I'm just yeah, I'm 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 keeping my fingers crossed with my Chargers starting off two and zero. Hopefully. You know, so Dan, it was great having you on, man. It was great uh, doing it. You know, you need me for anything. You know what? It's great to reach me.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's been great, Dana. Thanks so much.
0: Hello, sports fans, and welcome back to the broadcast. This is Dana Auguster, and you're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Sports podcast. And before we get on with the rest of the show, one sign that we're growing here at Historically Speaking Sports and the Sports History Network is right now we have a sponsor, and that sponsor is newspapers.com. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a serious sports fan like myself, and if you are into sports history, you need to check out newspapers.com. At newspapers.com, you can get access to over 640 million pages worth of news from the United States, Canada, England, Scotland, Ireland, and all of them dating back to the 1700s. To get a free one-week subscription to newspapers.com, you could do that by visiting thesportshistorynetwork.com slash newspapers and with a paid subscription, you'll also be helping to support the production of this and other Sports History Network shows. That's SportsHistoryNetwork.com newspapers. Also, check out our Twitter feed at HistoricallySP2 for your daily dose of sports history. And also, you could drop us a line or two at our email address, which is historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And finally, don't forget to hit that uh, subscribe button wherever you hear this podcast so you can get new episodes whenever they come out. And now, this week's top five. And this week's top five, if you're new here, what we do is we take the five events in the Annals of Sports History that celebrated anniversaries this past week. And today, we're highlighting the events that took place between the dates of September the 15th to September the 22nd. Number five. The New York Knickerbockers organized the rules of baseball. Now, before you get confused, I'm not talking about the New York Knickerbockers of the NBA. I'm talking about the very first organized baseball team that was based in Hoboken, New Jersey. In 1845, the New York Knickerbockers Baseball Club began to draw up the rules of baseball, which are still in use today. In the early years of the 19th century, the game was a combination of two British games. Rounders, which was a children's game, and Cricket, a stately game that had been played in England for a number of decades previous. After codifying the rules, which included the bases 90 feet apart, three outs in an inning, and no player was allowed to catch a ball in his cap, the Knickerbockers played the first real baseball game in history at the Elysian Fields in Hoboken, New Jersey. A year later, losing to a team called the New York Nine, 23-1 in just four innings. Now, if you make up the rules of baseball, you think you be, should be able to win the game, but in this case, not only did they, do, not only did they lose, they basically got blown out. Number four, Satchel Paige pitches three scoreless innings at the age of 59. Now, when it comes to baseball history, the name Satchel Paige is sort of relatable to the stories of Paul Bunyan, somewhat mythical. However... On September 25th, 1965, Page added to his mythic stature by pitching three scoreless innings for the Kansas City Athletics against the Boston Red Sox. Page allowed just one hit in three innings of work, a double to Red Sox outfielder Carl Yastrzemski in the first inning. Yet from that moment until he was taken out at the end of the third inning to a rousing ovation, Page was dominant. Not bad for a guy that was 59 years old. Number 3. The NFL players go on strike, Now I remember this because I was about 9 years old when this took place, and I was a big football fan as I am today, and this devastated me. On September the 21st, 1982, the NFL players went on strike that lasted 57 days. The strike occurred because the union demanded that wage scale based on the percentage of gross revenues be implemented and the NFLPA wanted the percentage to be 55%, and according to the Los Angeles Times, this demand dominated the negotiations. As a result of the strike, the season schedule was reduced from 16 games to 9 games, and the playoff was expanded to 16 teams, 8 from each conference, for a Super Bowl tournament. A new five-year agreement was finally ratified, providing severance packages to players upon re- retirement, an increase in salaries and postseason play, and bonuses based on the number of years of experience in the league. Additionally, the NFLPA was allowed to receive copies of all-player contracts. Number 2. USA Basketball Announces the Dream Team As a result of losing to Russia in the 1988 Olympics and finishing with a disappointing bronze medal, the United States, with permission from the International Olympic Committee, put together the first U.S. basketball team that featured NBA players. On September 21, 1991, NBA players and one collegiate player, Deuce Christian Leitner, was named to the team. The NBA stars included Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing, Charles Barkley, David Robinson, Scottie Pippen, John Stockton, Cora Malone, Clyde Drexler, and Chris Mullin. Team USA would go on to devastate the competition in the 92 Summer Games in Barcelona, Spain, cruising to a gold medal. And the number one event that took place this week in sports history, a base running error cost the New York Giants a pennant. In a crucial late regular season game at the Polo Grounds, on September 23, 23rd, 1908. The Chicago Cubs and the New York Giants were battling for the National League pennant. Heading into the game, Giants first baseman Fred Tanny was injured and he was replaced by a rookie by the name of Fred Merkel. In the bottom of the ninth inning, with the game tied one and one, with two outs, Giants catcher Moose McCormick was on third representing the winning run with Fred Merkel on first. Giants' charge stop, Al Bridwell centered in the center field for a single. McCormick sprinted home scoring easily. Giants fans was excited about the walk-off single and charged the field. Merkel, alarmed by the oncoming crowd, turned and headed for the clubhouse without touching second base. Johnny Evers, the Cubs second baseman, saw Merkel, hadn't touched second. If Evers could get the ball somehow and touch second, the run would be disallowed because of the force out. But he had to find the ball among the throng of people. The Cubs' center fielder won a scramble for the ball and threw it to Evers who touched second base. Both teams declared victory and it took National League Commissioner Harry Pulliam three days to declare the, uh, to declare the game a tie, and to hold a one-game playoff if the two teams finished the season tied with record-wise. Both the Giants and Cubs finished the season with the same record. So on October the 8th, the Giants and Cubs met in that one-game playoff, and the Cubs behind the pitching of Mordecai Three-Finger Brown, one of the coolest names in sports by the way, defeated legendary Christy Mathewson and the Giants by the final score of 4-2. to two. The Cubs would eventually win the World Series, beating the Boston Red Sox four games to one. And that concludes this week's top five and coming up next a shout out and this week's shout out is a very special one because it talks about my favorite football team coming up next Welcome back to the show, and to wrap things up here on this episode of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, I'd like to be a, go a little bit behind the curtain, I guess you should say, for this week's shout-out, and I'm shouting out to a subject that is very near and dear to my own heart, and it's been near and dear to my heart for, gosh, going on 40 years now, and that is actually over 40 years now that I think about it. Um, my love affair with my favorite NFL team and maybe my favorite team, actually it is my favorite team in any sport. And, and that is my fandom of the Los Angeles slash San Diego Chargers. Now you got to understand growing up in South Louisiana, like I did in the late 1970s, you basically had five teams that you pretty much rooted for. You know, at, you know, first of all, living in Louisiana, of course, the Saints. But in the late 1970s, the Saints was in the middle of doing the era of the Aints, when people used to go to the Superdome wearing bags on their heads. So that wasn't a team for me. Then you had the other local teams, quote unquote. You had the Oilers, which was actually pretty good at the time with Dan Pastorini and Earl Campbell and head coach Bum Phillips. They were pretty good. But I really didn't gravitate towards them. The Dallas Cowboys, not so much. Even though I did kind of like them until I reached the age of reason. And then I kind of turned away from them. Then you had the Pittsburgh Steelers, which was the kings of the NFL at the time with Bradshaw, who was a Louisiana guy. Franco Harris and their whole crew. But I just couldn't get with them. And last but not least, a lot of team, the, the One of the teams that a lot of kids gravitated to at my age group was the Oakland Raiders, which was my dad's favorite team. And I couldn't root for the same team my dad does. So, for, so I guess you know what? There was another team out in Southern California who seemed like they would score almost at will, was to score point after point after point after point, and. I fell in love with them because they were so exciting to watch, and so in a lot of high-scoring games. And that was the San Diego Chargers with Dan Fouts and Kellen Winslow, John Jefferson, Charlie Joyner, Chuck Muncie. Later came over from the Saints, and I fell in love with this team. and during the early eighties, during the heyday of Air Coriel, I was really right there front and center. Now, granted, you gotta understand this is the early nineteen eighties now. And a lot of that games really didn't come on TV Yeah, you know, because I was living in Louisiana. But whenever they did come on TV, and they came on TV quite a bit because they were one of the best teams in the NFL at the time. And I just Fell in love with them, especially with the lightning bolt and the colors and the, the their exciting level, their their exciting standard of the play. I was just enamored by them. And through the years, I stick with I stuck with them, even through in the lean years of the '80s when they had guys like Mark Vlasic at quarterback. He had Junior Seau, the superstar on defense, along with Leslie O'Neill, who should be in the Hall of Fame, by the way. Um, you had other guys there, like Mark Vlasic was the quarterback later on. It was John Freeze and and, and those guys. Gary Anderson was a running back. Later on, it was Rod Bernstein and Marion Butts and, you know, those guys. And and I stuck with them throughout. Even though they had some very lean years during that time, I still was with them. Until the mid-1990s, and when things turned around, especially that magical season in 1994... When the Chargers finally got things together, they had this unbelievable start to the season. I think they started off 7-0 and in 1994 and ended up going to the playoffs, beating the Steelers on a goal line stand to reach the Super Bowl. Their only Super Bowl appearance, and which was the loneliest night of my life. Staying in the college dorm, watching the game in the lobby of the dorm, and being the only visible Charger fan there. That's a story for another day. But... I stuck with them through thick and thin. I stuck with them during the Ryan Leaf era. When, and everybody that's a Chargers fan, or at least an NFL fan, understand what that was like. And then in the early 2000s, after suffering through that miserable 2000 season, when the Chargers went 1-15, we finally got two guys that we thought was going to be the bedrock of this franchise. One was Drew Brees, who later on, of course, went over to the New Orleans Saints. And Ladainian Tomlinson, in that when they traded away the number one pick, which would have been Michael Vick, traded into Atlanta to get the draft rights to get Ladainian Tomlinson, and later on Drew Brees. And Brees hurt his shoulder, well documented, and so brought in Phillip Rivers. And from this and from that point on, Chargers fans, you know, Chargers, um. They, they've worked out well. They've played well, but unfortunately just could not get to the big game for whatever reason. Playoff futility, I guess you could call it. But through all of that, through thick and thin, I've been a Chargers fan and will be a Chargers fan for life. And that wraps up this week's show. I hope you all, you all enjoyed the interview I had with Dan Newman. Hope you enjoyed the top five and of course, my rant and ravings about my fandom of the San Diego Chargers. So without further ado, I'd like to bid everyone a very fun farewell. And please, please, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts, and check us out on Twitter one more time. That Twitter feed is um, historically SP2. So without further ado, I'd like to bid everyone a very fun farewell and have a great week. And we'll come back better than ever. See ya.